Present Tense Media presents The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. In 1998, I met Lamar Marshall for the first time. I had been tasked with sourcing a speaker for Earth Day for the local Unitarian Church, and I'd seen the Wild Alabama magazine. Lamar was the founder and editor of the magazine, which had started as the Bankhead Monitor and became Wild Alabama Magazine. I invited Lamar to come and speak, and he did. He talked about the Bankhead National Forest and about the importance of wilderness and of the wild. A few months later, I started to spend time in the forest by myself. When I left the forest, after these trips, I carried the wild. I felt infused with the intense energy of the forest. I felt the patterns, textures, colors, and layers as a kind of power. In the forest, I was enlivened, encouraged to drop pretense, and to simply open. A year ago, after I'd started Present Tense Podcast, I thought that it was important to tell the stories of the warriors who'd changed U.S. Forest Service policy. I started to organize this series. The uncut version of these interviews will form an audio archive for Wild South, and the edited versions are the actual episodes. There are 14 episodes in all. There are many, many more warriors from whom we do not hear, people who donated funding, countless individuals who came forward with donations, with their time, and with their hearts. A vision fueled the heart of this movement and became unstoppable. This is perhaps the hope that we seek, that the forces of greed and materialism that shape government and bureaucratic policy can be redefined according to a greater intelligence and logic, that we may consider the very definition of wealth and what it means to profit in this world. In the series, we hear from voice after voice that education and exposure are the key to expanding the awareness of the fundamental power of the wild and of the wilderness of our own responsibility and our right to participate in forming the policies that impact the very planet that is our home and to continue the relationship and the fight to protect our last wild places. In episode one, we hear from Lamar Marshall, citizen eco-warrior and founder of the Bankhead Monitor and Wild Alabama. Lamar is featured in the first episode of this 14-part series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, for a simple reason. In every other conversation, the person referenced the moment when they met Lamar. And some consider that while everyone is important, Lamar was the momentum and the glue. Lamar not only lit the fire under a movement 
that changed national forest policy. He is a believer in connecting disparate groups under a unified banner for change. He brought together environmentalists, bird watchers, biologists, horse riding enthusiasts, hunters, hikers, loggers, the U.S. Forest Service, and more in a shared common goal of saving a wild place that was of deep importance to each person. Lamar also brought together and galvanized the efforts of the Native American people, including the Blue Clan of the Ochota Cherokee, who had been working to save the forest for many years prior. He listened to the wisdom of the local people, whose roots ran deep in the Warrior Mountains, including both the Sipsi Wilderness and the Bankhead National Forest. Lamar's reverence, sarcasm, intelligence, and fire are a joy or a trial, depending on your end of the stick. My name is uh, Ralph Lamar Marshall. I guess it goes back to when I was uh, very, very young. I had a love for uh, nature and the great outdoors due to the fact that I had grandparents that were raised in the mountains, uh, on, in mountain farms, uh, and hunted and fished. And my dad, you know, of course, took me out fishing. My granddaddy used to take me rabbit hunting where I would follow behind him. And he was pretty old then even. I was young, and uh, he had a shotgun, and I would follow him at my grandmother's. Um, uh, she didn't like that at all, that I followed Grandpa with a, with a shotgun. She thought I was going to get shot or something, but it wasn't dangerous. But at any rate, at an early age, I developed a love for nature, for the natural creation, the native forest. And I think what motivated me most was uh, studying and learning at an early age about Native Americans and Native America and how free they were and how free all peoples were early on before we became enslaved into a corporate world system that uh, more or less says you can't make a living unless you're part of the, the corporate structure. Uh, I saw my ancestors as living off the land. They, they hunted, they fished, they uh, grew food. They were self-sufficient, and they didn't have to get up and, you know, go to go to school. They didn't have to get up and uh, go at eight o'clock, start at the punch in the clock, corporate America. So I saw the my worldview was that they would, we were living in the fragmentation of what was once a magnificent earth with magnificent forest, uh, clean air, clean waters, uh, wide open spaces where you were free. Wilderness was the ultimate expression of freedom to me, and that's all I studied about when I was young. And uh, early age, I joined the Boy Scouts. Uh, people think that's kind of corny, but uh, actually, it was a, a great experience to learn about woodcraft and to learn about how the native peoples lived and learn, uh, learn skills, arts and crafts and skills. So being self-sufficient became um, something that I wanted to follow the rest of my life. In the scouts, I began to, to really go into these places uh, uh, on scouting trips out into swamps or into the mountains. Uh, we hiked the Appalachian Trail, and I felt uh, very connected to the, to the mountains and the lands. And then as I got older and became a teenager and got my first motorbike, 
motorcycle. I was able to then get a little job, you know, then I could really go farther out from home and I wasn't confined to my neighborhood and the, the local woods. And I began to go on exploration trips. And so we'd go, got, got a, bought a canoe eventually, began canoeing the rivers of Alabama, visiting the Tensaw swamps, uh, canoed across the Okefenokee swamp. I got a little bit older and we ventured out even farther uh, in that we would go to the Rocky Mountains and spend two weeks uh, going across the Bob Marshall Wilderness or the Scapegoat, the Great Bear, or up into Glacier. And I just be uh, became my recreation. I didn't care anything about football, baseball, basketball, or all these sports that people did. My sport was being in the wilderness and being able to navigate myself across vast expanses of wilderness with only a map and a compass. And uh, in case of hardship, knowing how to to uh, get myself out of a difficult situation, uh, how to uh, survive, you know, get water if I needed to, or uh, not a whole lot you can uh, subsist off of out there if you're lost. You certainly can't, you know, hunt for a blackberry patch uh, in uh, December. Uh, you know, blackberries come in like a week or two of the year, and that's it. So <laughs> a lot of misconceptions about uh, wilderness survival. Uh, when I got married, the first time I moved uh, to the country out of Birmingham, Alabama into the countryside and began uh, the homestead type life and uh, continued spending all my time trotlining for catfish, trapping for fur in the wintertime, uh, doing arts and crafts and continuing to go to the Bankhead National Forest to the Sipsi, which was a very special place. I didn't realize then that it was such an, just an island of a, of a wilderness that had been fought for over for decades. I knew there was a fight for it. People had really worked for years before I ever got involved in the, the movement that we founded. Uh, there were, you know, the pioneers before us that had fought and got the Sipsi Wilderness designated. But in uh, 1991, I bought 100 acres of, of land within the Bankhead National Forest and moved on that 100 acres had a mile-long driveway through the woods to get there and was surrounded on three sides by a national forest. Well, my daughter loved to ride horses, and we got horses, and we would venture out on the horses up into the, to the some parts of the forest. And I began to uh, explore, not in the Sipsi Wilderness, but in that the outside the 12,000-acre, uh, then the 26,000-acre wilderness into the 180,000 acre Bankhead National Forest and I found out that the ridge tops were clear cut. We would be traveling along a beautiful, through a beautiful forest and all of a sudden there was 40, 50, 60 acres of, of, of land where the trees would look like a bomb went off. There was nothing there. It was nothing but mud, dirt, washed out soils. And I was like, what in the world is going on out here? Man, what are they doing? Uh, who's doing this? Why are they doing it? I thought this was protected lands. Well, that was a misconception. National parks are protected, but national forests are not necessarily protected. So, next thing that happened was uh, I picked up a molten advertiser, a local newspaper, and Ricky Butch Walker, who was a, uh, a seventh generation or so descendant of people from the forest, had written an article of how the Forest Service had gone in and clear-cut Indian Tomb Hollow, which was a sacred area to Native Americans, and contain archaeological 
places and so forth. And it was clear cut, 40 acres clear cut out of it. Uh, so I called Butch, and Butch Walker, you know, said, hey, come over and meet me, and I'll, I'll tell, you, tell you what's going on. So, uh, in fact, we went out and looked at Indian Tomb Hollow, and one of the shocking things that we found was after the Forest Service had clear-cut this sacred hollow, looters went into this big bluff shelter and dug up uh, Indian graves, and we found a jawbone, a human jawbone, laying up on a, up on a, a piece of rock, rock shelf, and pottery scattered all over the ground where they had sifted and dug, and with no, you know, uh, didn't care what, they just wanted to dig up relics and sell them or collect them. So I was like, how can this be legal? Contacted Charles Borden, friend of Butch's, and Charles explained to me how the Forest Service had a 50-year plan to rotate and cut down uh, like blocks. I'd, I call it like a checkerboard. This year they would clear cut these checkers over here, and then next year they would cut some over there. And then about ever uh, so often they'd come back and cut the same place again so that they were just, you know, this whole thing was a, turned into a tree farm. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's basically this uh, native hardwood national forest uh, was under a forest plan that was going to uh, do industrial tree farming across it by clear-cutting, poisoning, and burning, and converting what was a mixed native hardwood forest into a, a monopolized uh, pine plantation of loblolly pines. It's tree farming, plain and simple. And I'm like, you know, well, we only have a few hundred thousand acres of, uh, of wild, what represents Native America. This is the last things we've got, the last places in Alabama that represent Native America. Uh, everything else can be developed. Everything else is private property. People can grow trees on their private property. Why is the government competing with, with private companies that can grow and produce our wood and our pulp and cutting it down on the national forest? Well, that's a lot of politics involved in that, but I saw this as an outrage and I began to think, what can we do about this? You know, how, how, how can we deal with this? I'm, I, I got 100 acres here. Uh, there's got to be something we can do. So Butch and, uh, uh, and uh, Charles Borden invited me to a Chota Cherokee Blue Clan meeting and said they were very concerned about what was going on, too, and they were outraged about Indian Tomb Hollow. Well, not long after that, the Cherokees got a, a group up and went down and met with the district ranger of the Forest Service, and he said, I don't know what y'all are upset about. You got toilet paper and you got a good road into Indian Tomb now. Well, when I heard that, that just made my blood boil. And I'm like, you know what? These people are, are nasty. And so I fought like a warrior and I said, you know, we're like a band of natives that are fighting for our, our public properties. We are, are going to do something about it. And since we were like little ants and they were like, you know, great bigs, whatever, we had to come up with some guerrilla type tactics to fight back. And that, and that included the personalization of leaders and district rangers and people that were here uh, in order to, um, you know, put a face on who's doing this damage to our forest. So I guess you'd sum that up 
uh, by saying that I had an intense love for wilderness. Wilderness meant everything to me. There were very little wilderness in Alabama. The impacts of the logging and commercial logging going on around the wilderness was uh, decimating and you know in impacting the wilderness itself. There were places that deserved to be added to the wilderness, but they were not going to be eligible if they were destroyed, clear cut, and you know and that was kind of the attitude. When I met a, a man named Jim Inasco, and that was also early on, I found out a little more that the Forest Service was actually violating what should have been laws that would protect archaeological sites, sacred sites, uh, ecologically sensitive sites, and they were not doing this. And so with more investigation, uh, I found out later on, in fact, that they were violating uh, the National Historic Preservation Act, for example, because they were not doing cultural inventories. They were not sending in archaeologists that were trained to, to identify uh, important archaeological sites, cultural sites, sacred sites. They had a silviculturist, which is like a um, uh, it's like a tree. You know, somebody grows trees. A silviculturist is has, is a very good at at uh, growing trees. You know, you cut down a bunch of trees and you uh, uh, burn it off, and then you spray it with herbicides to kill any kind of competition. Uh, and when done on, by the way, when that's done on a large scale. Of thousands of acres that wipes out ninety uh, percent of the biodiversity of the of the forest, but you can grow some great trees on it if you like r nice rows of uh, big loblolly pines. That uh, you know, but that's that's tree farming. Silvicultures had no, um, in fact, they weren't uh, authorized to go out and do archaeological work and to sign off things that said there were no archaeological sites in Indian Tomb Hollow, for example. And to make matters worse, this was what they called a below-cost sale. In order to improve the forest and get our tree farm and really moving along in Indian Tomb, which was full of great big giant hardwoods and uh, you know places where people went to uh, uh, relate to the land and their ancestors and their cultural heritage, uh, we need to improve this this uh, this section of forest, and we're going to do that by clear cutting it and getting some good thrifty young pines going in there attitude with the Forest Service was, you know, was struck me wrong. I said, well, you know what, I'm going to design a, a newsletter, or a little, well, I call it a newsletter, that create a voice, and we're going to distribute this thing far and wide to let people know what's going, going on. I didn't know what was going on up here, and I don't think the general public knows what's going up here, on up here in the backwoods of the forest. So we thought about what could we name this? Uh, well, it's the Bankhead uh, Bankhead National Forest, let's call it the Bankhead Watchdog. I was like, nah, that, that's lame, that's pretty lame. So we ended up calling it the Bankhead Monitor, and a, a Creek Indian uh, associated with the, the Creek tribe, and this was Creek country down in a lot of the uh, the Bankhead, the Black Warrior Mountains and the Black Warrior River, the Muscogee uh, Indian people. We adopted Ladaji as our, uh, as our, for our logo, and as our, mas kind of a, like a mascot, and I created this uh, first flyer, and it was uh, Alabama Chainsaw Massacre, clear-cutting a historic site. And I like to draw cartoons, uh, you know, being sarcastic. And so I got a photograph of the district ranger, and I uh, made cartoon, drew cartoons of him. Uh, he always had chain, had you know, big chainsaw strapped on his side, and he's a, uh, you know, he's a tree cutter. He likes to cut trees. 
So I began drawing cartoons of him, and I got really criticized for making this whole thing personal. And one day, after about a year, I, in the meantime, I'd gotten, uh, almost got arrested for passing out bankhead monitors at the Sipsy Recreation Area. I was uh, just handing those, there was busloads of people coming down to recreate and picnic, and I was up there just handing out my monitors wide open. And the uh, forest, uh, the uh, law enforcement officer pulled up and saw me, and he was livid. He got out and told me to get in his Jeep, and he pulled out a ticket book, and his hands were shaking. He was just shaking. Uh, and I said, what's, what's the problem? I said, I'm just passing out information about the Bankhead Forest. He said, he said, I know what you're passing out. He said, I've seen it, and I've read it, and I don't like it. I said, well, what is it you don't like about it? And he said, the cartoons of Mr. Ramey, for one thing. And uh, he said, if you don't like uh you don't have to hike and camp where they do where we're cutting timber. You can go hike and camp somewhere else. And so he wrote me out a, a warning ticket this time. Oh, give passing out information on federal property. Uh, passing out uh, didn't have a permit to pass out literature on a public place or something like that. So I said, okay, if I can't pass it out here, well then here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around to every store in the entire county up here, and I'm gonna, and I made up boxes that would hold my my fly, my my magazines, and I put a price on, on uh, uh, as we developed it. We I put a price on it, and I went around to different stores and recreational places and fishing camps, and said, "Hey, if you'll put my our monitors in here, this is all about the, the Bankhead National Forest, and you know fishing and all this kind of stuff, and and uh, I'll give you half of the half of the profit if they sell." Well, we started putting these things out as they became uh, more. Um, you know, a little bit longer and a little color on there and stuff. They sold out, and they were selling out all over. And I'd, I'd drive around 100 miles in a in a loop around the bankhead and uh, to go to my store after store after store and and uh, and collect my money. And then we put that money into the pot to produce more little magazines. And it began to grow. And then as the magazine spread, within well, so did the people that picked it up and read it and called us and contacted us. And then we started a membership. Next thing I knew, we had 50 members, then 100 members, then 200 members, and then uh, after a few years, we had hundreds of members. I don't know how many we finally uh, ended up with. So it just grew. The, the The people were there. The people loved the forest, but there was no uh, there was n no organization that was focused on protecting this forest, and we became that organization, and we were an organization of many talents. Um, my talent was uh, drawing cartoons of district rangers and and uh, sound bites to the media, and um, then we had all kind of we had lawyers, we had people that were artists, photographers, uh, people that were good with uh, you know taking groups out and uh, and teaching them about the the land, the ecology, and the history. Uh, it, it, it's exploded into a into a grassroots movement that eventually, not too long, too many years after that, we found out we had to change the name to Wild Alabama. We couldn't restrict our work to the bankhead. We needed to, to protect the Talladega National Forest, the Conecuh National Forest, uh, so forth. We only had 650,000 acres of public land in Alabama that was federal. So that was very little land, and we were raising an army to fight against the evils of corporate America, and their arm, the U.S. Forest Service, which was an, 
uh, actually a, uh, a, a corporate timber, federal timber company, what we call it, a federal timber company. And basically it catered to the timber industry. Another thing we found out was that, hey, how come they're not doing this so much up in the great, in the Smokies in North Carolina and Tennessee? You know, well, that's where everybody goes to just, you know, look at the leaves and to recreate. And that's the big mountains. And little old Alabama is a sacrifice place. This is a bunch of rednecks down there. They, you know, we're going to go down there and we're going to, we're going to uh, log this place. This is a sacrifice for us because we don't do it over there. We need to do more of it here in Alabama and Mississippi. Uh, who's lasting about everything. So we were up against a, a, a very tough opponent. We had timber people, timber beasts were entrenched in the federal agency in Alabama. They basically were outlaws that were operating outside their own regulations as in 1996 when a lot of this came to a head when they were continued to clear-cut Indian Tomb Holland, bulldoze and destroyed uh, historic places. We had a 1996 had an Indian protest, and we had people came as far from as from the northwest, from the American Indian movement even came down and represented themselves here. We they, we accused the Forest Service and already filed several lawsuits, and we were appealing, uh, you know, forest decisions they were making. We had attorneys, and they could just continue to 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 railroad their policies through the forest using bulldozers and you know they bulldozed the high town path which was a historic uh, early road pioneer road and indian path and so we called this big protest which was took place in lawrence county alabama at the oakville indian mounds in 1996 and we contacted the regional forest service over in atlanta and and told them what was going on they already were getting kind of tired of all this negative media coming out across out of Alabama, and we made the front page news regularly with our lawsuits and our, uh, you know, the uh, pictures, and uh, we took uh, reporters into the forest and showed them on the ground what was going on. So they sent regional representatives over, and we had four hours of uh, local people, the grassroots groups, the, the people that had born and raised in the forest where their grandmas and grandpas were buried and the cemeteries were clear-cut around, uh, Native American descendants, four hours of testimony, uh, and it just so happened that that morning I went up to to the High Town Path and found where a bulldozer had run, run over a turtle, a box turtle in the in the in the path, and his shell had just turned white and fell apart. And I picked that that up and I said, "This is symbolic of the whole thing." Here's the the turtle. We're members of the Turtle Clan, the Bankhead Monitor. Here's the loja, the turtle. It's been destroyed by this uh, logging operation. When I got up to make my speech before the regional representatives, I held those turtle bones up and I just threw them down on the ground and gave my speech. Well, they were sitting taking notes for four hours, and when they got done, uh, Dr. Kent Snyder, who was a, the Forest Service archaeologist for the region, and Do David Holland, who was the recreational director for the region, said, Dr. Snyder said, they are violating Forest Service regulations. And uh, the uh, for regional forester, Bob Joslin at the time, uh, uh, gave orders to put a moratorium on the contested areas here. So they took maps and they said, draw 
a ring around the, the contested areas, the cultural areas, and the places that are being, uh, where the law is being violated, where the National Historic Preservation Act, where the, uh, there's several different laws that cover protection of Indian graves and cultural sites. So we, I drew uh, perimeters around what totaled up to be 18,000 acres, and the Forest Service slapped a moratorium on those areas, and the Forest Service said, the regents told Alabama, said, you will not, there will be no ground-disturbing activities on these sites until this is all resolved, until cultural surveys are done and archaeological studies are done. And that began a long process of, of um, uh, bringing in experts to, to work on this. Well, you know, the bureaucracies can go on for years and years and years, and having an 18,000-acre moratorium on what they wanted to cut down was a, a pretty big victory on our part uh, to do that. But as the time went on and the years went on and the rest of the country began to change and they recognized that Alabama was very archaic in their management policies, they, uh, they came up, the time came that we had to revise our forest plan in Alabama, which would change the management here. And mean, meanwhile, we had mapped uh, hundreds of miles of canyons in the bankhead that were very unique geologically. Uh, they didn't generally get down in these canyons and clear-cut down in the canyons uh, because they were in the riparian zones and there were bluff lines and they just couldn't do it physically for one thing. But in the meantime, we had hired, we'd raised money and we hired two NASA scientists, uh, Dr. Jeff Laval, uh, another fellow named Rick. One was a hydrologist and one of them was a soil scientist. And they were from NASA and they came down and they they worked for months on the mountaintops here and examined the clear cuts and the impacts of the clear cuts on the ridges as to the riparian areas and canyons below. Came to the conclusion that these clear cuts were in fact highly impacting endangered species in the streams like endangered mussels uh, in the waters because the sediment was coming off the mountaintops, of course. Everybody knows that, even though it was denied by the Forest Service. And they said, uh, back in the earliest times before any logging in the bankhead that these ridge tops were like giant sponges and that during the summertime the rains would rain and these big sponges would fill up with water and then during the uh, during the winter time and then during the summertime this water seeps down into the canyons and everything had a lot more water and it was more plush they said when they first clear cut the ridge tops that it was like flushing a toilet all the water then didn't soak into the sponge it just rushed down off the sides and, it, and it, uh, it caused channelization in the streams made the banks you know what used to be kind of level with the with the, uh, the ground uh, steep banks were cut down into the ground the water table was lowered so that made the whole forest you know less uh, uh, had less water well the loss of the American chestnut which every third tree in this forest was at one time was an American chestnut on the ridges and mountains and side slopes, uh, was also another great loss. So the wildlife has diminished. Uh, studies showed that uh, clear-cutting areas of the mountains with uh, salamanders would be eliminated and it would take, take at least 300 years to get these salamander populations back. So uh, next, Dr. Edward uh, E.O. Wilson, renowned uh, renowned environmental scientist he became a friend of ours and he wrote that we were the thin green line in Alabama holding back the you know the 
the login, you know, that was going to wipe out a lot of things in this forest. And he told us, he said, when they convert a natural native forest to a pine monoculture, you lose 90% of the biodiversity. So there's the science, there's the scientist, and we've got all of this uh, uh, truth on our side. And we got propaganda coming out of the Forest Service here about how they weren't damaging anything, when in fact they were doing much damage to the land. Uh, not to mention the fact that all the people in Alabama have got 650,000 acres to recreate on public lands, and why are we clear-cutting and making that impossible uh, for the public to access? And that's disregarding any environmental damage. Getting back to the forest plan revision, during this process of time, uh, there were no cultural heritage pre uh, prescriptions. They call what they do like a doctor, you know, prescription. Uh, so cultural heritage prescriptions, I contended, needed to be developed that would protect, identify, survey, and protect all sacred sites, archaeological sites, Native American sites, and, and inventory all this before you go out and start cutting and doing ground-disturbing activities. Why would you, you know, destroy it first? And, you know, I guess they, their philosophy was get rid of these archaeological sites and we can tree-farm this forever. But the region developed cultural heritage prescriptions based on our recommendations. That was a great victory not only for Alabama but for the entire southeast. We also developed uh, geological prescriptions or had they developed it, we provided, you know, the input, but they, their scientists uh, came up with a, can, we call them canyon prescriptions because since the canyons were special, special geological features with special ecological values and special, eco, you know, in ecological components, that they needed to be managed differently than a ridge top that was a dry, xeric soil, and these were rich, Mesic soils in the canyons, and and they agreed, and they came up with a, a way to identify the canyons. So the canyons came out of the timber base. So we're talking uh, first they had 180,000 acres of timber base. That's the where they can cut timber. Sipsi Wilderness is protected. Uh, it comes out of the timber base. It was like 26,000 acres uh, uh, the last time they expanded it. Okay, the riparian zones were pretty well already out of the uh, out of the timber base. That's another several hundred thousand acres, probably the canyons. So the timber base is shrinking, and they don't want the timber base to shrink. Well, we identified also a botanical area and on Flint Creek in the Bankhead, and it was nominated, and uh, the Forest Service added it into the the new plan, and we got a Flint Creek botanical area, another few thousand acres out of the timber base. So, my philosophy uh, most of the time was, hey, if something has a special uh, value, well, then it should have a special management prescription. So, if you could prove that an area was culturally significant, archaeologically significant, ecologically significant, well, then they have to be considered and, and, uh, and, and not defiled with uh, herbicides, poisons, or Agent Orange, as the Forest Service used at one time, flying helicopters over this forest. So it's been a 25-year, at this point in time, 25 years for me uh, when I retired two years ago. So uh, thinking back on some of the tactics I had to use was uh, 
kind of comical. Uh, early on, I didn't have much to go with, but I would go to Forest Service meetings and say, talking about the Agent Orange, which was a uh, put a, had, had dioxin in it, and it was used. Two four five T was mixed with a two four D, and it made this incredible herbicide that they used in Vietnam to defoliate the countryside so that the Viet Cong couldn't hide. Well, it was horribly cancerous, cancer-causing. It's horrible. It was, uh, stays in the soils for dioxin stays in the soils for. I don't even know how long it would stay before it would get gone hundreds or thousands of years. So the Bankhead National Forest, when they first began to eliminate and to decimate these hundreds of years old trees on these ridge tops, they first tried started trying to girdle them with a chainsaws. That means take a chainsaw and go around and cut the Cambrian bark so deep into the tree that it dies. If the bark is, you know, around a tree is cut, it'll die. So they were girdling the trees, killing vast stands of hardwoods that were that were producing tons and tons of mast every year, oaks, you know, you know, oaks, acorns, and that's basically all that's left after the chestnut got gone. So they were destroying all of this, which was food for the deer and food for the turkeys and and so forth. They couldn't do it fast enough, so they decided, well, hey, it worked in Vietnam. Why can't we fly helicopters over and spray Agent Orange, you know, over the forest up here? And they did that. Some of that stuff blew over the community of Mount Hope. It killed their crops and uh, their ochre. Somebody said their ochre plants twisted and turned and became mutated and uh, no telling what all <laughs> happened. But they, they paid them off. They paid, made a small settlement to the farmers and hushed it up. And since then, of course, they quit using the Agent Orange. But that's typical of the mentality of people that just want to get the job done. Hey, we can't get rid of these uh, hardwoods fast enough. Let's bomb them. Let's napalm them. Let's put poisons on them. Do whatever it takes to get the job done. So, so we were we were like a little band of warriors that were fighting against the uh, the big enemy. After a year of after the Bankhead Monitor was uh, launched. The, uh, I thought we were doing some real good after about a year, you know, and really politicizing this guy in a negative way in the news media. So the ranger invites me down to Double Springs, and um, I said, wow, finally the district ranger's going to sit down with me, and me and him are going to be like generals. We're going to work out a deal on, on how we're going to protect, you know, we're not going to do this stuff anymore. That was the farthest thing from the truth. Number one, I should have known something was wrong when he uh, made the time after 5 o'clock when their office closed. But I went down anyway, and I went in. There was nobody there but him. And I went in his office and sat down, and he was in a big rolling chair across the table. And uh, he looked at me, and he he rolled his chair around his desk, got up close to me, and he said, I want to tell you something. He said, I'm a Vietnam vet. He said, some of my men are Vietnam vets, and frankly— you know, some of my men wanted wanted to come after you. And I stood up, and I said, by God, tell them to come on. I said, I said, you know, <laughs> tell them to come on. I said, I'm armed. Basically said, I'm armed, and, you know, and I'm ready to go, and I'm ready to take them with me. Uh, I thought that was a pretty cool line. That came out of a, out of a Steven Seagal movie. Anyway, he said, well, I didn't mean violence. Uh, I, didn't, I, I said, what did you mean? He said, I mean, all the cartoons you're drawing to me, he said, uh, uh, they wanted to sue you. And I said, well, he said, why do, you, why, do you do this? why are you personalizing this against me? He said, well, because I said, you know, 
y'all are a great big federal agency and we're like little bitty ants. And I said, you know, we're kind of like the Viet Cong. We have to fight guerrilla warfare in order to, you know, to, to deal with this situation. So things went real bad then, and then it got worse after that. And uh, we were not friends. We were, you know, pretty bitter enemies. Uh, we got him, got him removed. After 1996 and the great Indian protest and the violation, it came out that they were violating federal laws. Uh, he got demoted, promoted, or removed to a different state. And John Yancey, the uh, state supervisor, who was also just as devious and evil and bad, was uh, left the Forest Service and went to work for the National Park Service, God Save Our National Parks. They were archaic timber beasts positioned here by the timber industry, corporate timber industry. They got gone. I, I detailed that account. You can read about it. It's under my article called uh, The Conservation Hall of Shame. These men defiled and destroyed our forest, and their names will long live in infamy. The awareness that we raised through hundreds of, uh, we were in sports afield, we were in all kind of magazines, we were uh, featured on front page headlines, we were on uh, TV programs. All of that attention, focused attention on Alabama, and it changed the way that the, the forests were managed here on the public lands, on the national forest at least. Uh, I think the new forest plan came out. It was a, a plan that was supposed to be based on restoration. There were going to be some areas in the forest where they would uh, highlight or, or showcase some places that, uh, like Alabama used to be hundreds of years ago. We wondered if that was appropriate for here. But uh, basically, they were going to slowly, the plan was that they were supposed to slowly thin out the loblolly pines that had been planted that were not the, they were not, they're native, but they were not supposed to be there. They were going to thin those out and allow the hardwoods to come back in areas and gradually restore the forest. So the fact that that plan is in place now, uh, although not flawless, it is a vast improvement over the early days, and our cultural heritage work has spread over the region. And I spent 10 years, the last 10 years, in North Carolina taking these cultural heritage uh, principles uh, to North Carolina and I learned in Alabama and, I, and the thing I learned was that hey people don't care they don't give a flip about an endangered darter down here but they do care about that hill where they killed their first deer they care about where their grandma and their grandpas are buried they care about their old home sites and as uh, Charles Hubbard an archaeologist that loved the forest told me uh, once he said Maury said, the blood and the bones of my ancestors nourished all those old trees up there that they're cutting. And that struck home right there. And I said, that's what moves people right there, their connection to the land. Uh, that's a, an age-old, uh, you know, connection. And they will stand up and they will fight for things, you know, like that. So I went to North Carolina and I began working with the, uh, the eastern bound of the Cherokees, uh, mapping Cherokee trails across national forests. Now, they were very progressive up there and very receptive. They were very good agency, and I literally went up and we found records and we mapped Cherokee trails across the Nandahala National Forest, the Pisgah uh, National Forest, and uh, submitted them to the Forest Service, and they put them right in their plans. They uh, marked them as uh, uh, study areas and preserved areas, and I'd say that the uh, 
the uh, that this is a great victory. I mean, you know, you can't sometimes can't claim a clear victory, but you've made a change, whatever that change turns out to be. So we made a change. One of the things I did in Alabama uh, as part of a um, the historical research, uh, I worked with Butch Walker, who has done a lot of research on the uh, the trails of Lawrence County and the Bankhead National Forest and written books on it. So we we uh, researched old road records and uh, sort of amassed those. I joined the Trail of Tears Association in Alabama and um, began to, to study these early survey maps. I was a surveyor. Uh, I worked for surveying companies uh, for years in in, uh, in Alabama, and so I was a plat technician. I knew maps. I knew how to read uh, read the old surveys from the 1800s, and so I began to map out a lot of these uh, old. Indian trails and, and uh, roads in North Alabama. Well, I went to Rainsville, Alabama one day, and there was a big historical marker up there, and it said, the Trail of Tears went through here. The Indians, Cherokees were removed here. And I said, well, oh, oh that's nice. And I looked at the maps. So I went back, and I found the 1830, uh, I think there were 1837 surveys somewhere. They were after 1820, where they had uh, surveyed all of the this territory up here. They were removing the Indians. And so they sent the surveyors in so they could uh, section township, you know, and uh, carve up the land and then sell it. And so they noted where the roads were and the trails were. Well, there weren't any, uh, there wasn't a trail up through Rainsville like that. There may have been an insignificant trail through there, but the wagon road that went from Fort Payne, Alabama, to Pulaski, Tennessee, was a wagon road, and it went down from Fort Payne down Wills Valley and ascended the um, um, Sand Mountain uh, down around Lebanon and went to, through Gunnersville State Park and we found original remnants of that, got it recognized and then mapped it on through Paint Rock and uh, Huntsville and then uh, up into Tennessee. And then the other Trail of Tears chapters of course worked in Tennessee. So these maps that I produced were adopted by the National Park Service, incorporated into the National Historic Trail System and recognized as the route of the Benge Detachment where Cherokees were removed from Alabama in 1838. And that was part of a project that was also, uh, had other people like working on the Cherokee ferries, on the Cherokee town, you know, I was part of a team and that my part of the work was the trails. So that was very, uh, uh, a very good work. And then in North Carolina, I am a, a board of director with the North Carolina Trail of Tears Association and this work is ongoing. Uh, on uh, designating uh, sections of newly found portions of the Trail of Tears and historic Cherokee trails in general. Being part of a nationwide movement, we had all, had a wide spectrum of environmental groups who had different tactics. Earth First, of course, protested, chained themselves to trees and this and that. Kind of a, a work, doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore, period, I don't think. Uh, it didn't work in Alabama. And the only way we're gonna change things at large, and I think things are changing uh, in regards to the question you ask, um, and the mentality and the mindset and the worldview of, of the gen younger generation uh, as it becomes uh, uh, more numerous. I've seen this in the last 25 years really grow. It's, you know, universities have got young people that are environmentally conscious, not many of them then, not enough to really uh, change anything. Then they can become adults, and then they they're, you know, voting and, you know, doing things to, to change the mindset. The forestry profession 
is producing foresters that are more ecologically uh, sensitive and, uh, and uh, take better care of things. It's, uh, sometimes it's not visible, but at large, uh, yes, there's huge movements of people um, um, trying to protect cultural places, and I think that, that on public lands, you know, you've still got a industrial mindset among a lot of our political leaders that want to roll back environmental laws, and, um, but I don't think in the long run that's going to win. The way people think it has to change, and the young people are going to be the key to that. The youth, we took hundreds and hundreds of young people to the bankhead. That was one of our main objectives. All the schools in North Alabama brought their buses, and we took them down the trails, and we said, hey, this was an Indian trail, and you know the Indians lived here, and this is a yellow root uh, plant here. It was used for stomach medicine, and we pull it up, and they taste of it. Tastes horrible, by the way, that particular plant. And uh, get them out there into nature and uh, experience nature and then see the beauty of nature, and then they'll want to uh, utilize it. If people don't, if our young people become alienated from the land, from nature, from, uh, uh, you know, enjoying getting out doing that, there's going to be nobody to, as a, that will be a voice for those places. We've got to have a voice. They have to have a voice for the trees and a voice for the native natural creation. Otherwise, people that want to exploit it are going to exploit it, just like people kill rhinoceroses. They kill uh, exotic animals now to the point of extermination and don't care. So there's always going to be somebody that's going to try to make a buck or to, or to uh, get around the laws, uh, violate the laws, or change the laws and make money off of destruction and uh, destroying people's health and destroying our air, water, an environment of which is a basic human right. We all have a right to clean air, clean water, and wild, natural, native places to go and, and you know, recreate, live in. Uh, so those rights have to be protected, and the only way we're going to do that is by educating a generation of people that's going to transform politics and government. And that's happening. It's, it's, sometimes it's slow, but it is happening. And uh, we're right now at a point in time in American history that uh, the corporate power is pretty well uh, t uh, going strong, <laughs> very strong right now. But I think there's going to be a backlash to that eventually. That will that's that's where it's at. Uh, I'm I'm a firm believer in in the old time barter system. Um, and, you know they do that on a small scale where I live, just the local people. You know, the, the one they help, they'll help their neighbors. You know, somebody's elderly and needs firewood, they'll cut a load of firewood and take it to them. Stay on the community level. But I love buying from a, an enterprising uh, young person that's producing something that I'm gonna buy anyway, and I know it's been it's been grown and taken care of and handled with care, and that they they're uh, very interested in promoting good health to their their clientele. Mm -hmm. And they don't care about whether it's, they're trying to move a, a billion cases of this or a million cases of that. And maybe it's a little out of date and they'll either ship it on anyway. We can't afford to take the loss. Yeah, I'm blessed with uh, living up in the mountains where we can still uh, eat fresh trout out of the rivers and, uh, you know, local grown meats. And I like, a, uh, say, goat milk, you know, that's produced on the local dairy. My wife likes to, to weave and make her own uh, threads out of a wool off of locally grown sheep, 
that are you know somebody has a sheep and they produce the wool she buys the wool and then spins it into yarn uh, that's that's where it's, where it's at there's two systems in this world and uh, one is you can be part of the corporate system and make all the money you can make and and pay somebody else to do everything for you or you can do those things for yourself and be self-sufficient and you can live on less so i think we could live on a lot less uh, uh, dependence on the on corporate money uh, if we you know grow part of our food if you spend two months of the year working at a corporate job to to uh, buy your vegetables and you turned around and you spent that time out growing your own vegetables which would take less than two months uh, that'd be two months less in my view that you wouldn't have to work for corporate america if your dwelling was uh, paid for your house was paid for as ours will be uh, this next year well and you were paying six eight hundred dollars a month on a house payment when you got you build your own dwelling and it's paid for that's six months you don't have to go to corporate america to work so if you were one of these young enterprising companies and did all those things and had a had a business that only brought in 25 or 30 percent of what you'd be making at corporate america within uh you're just as wealthy as as somebody that works for corporate america but you're happier you're on your land you're in business for you work for yourself you're not working for the man you don't punch a time clock you don't have to have to uh uh, you know, be there at 8 o'clock and, you know, to get off at 5 o'clock and be in the 5 o'clock rush. Of course, my experience with that is, and my own experience is, is if you're working for yourself and you have a little business, you ain't going to sleep till 8 o'clock. You're going to get up earlier. You're going to go the extra mile. You're going to make sure that everything is done that needs to be done. So you may end up working more hours, but you're going to be much more happier and much more content. Thanks to Janice Barrett, Alabama Outreach and Education Coordinator for Wild South. Thanks to Farron Weeks for the music of the White Horse Singers. And thanks to Lamar Marshall for his interview with Present Tense Media and for all of the work that he's done alongside so many others to save Alabama's last wild places. To learn more about Wild South and the work that they do and about Lamar Marshall, go to greenbucketpress.com backslash present dash tense dash podcast. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and leave a review. Thanks so much for listening.